Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good men and women around the world who want to make a difference. The engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed. But the only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and I'm going to come clean right up front. I am exhausted. Mike and I will be back from Texas when you're hearing this episode, but we're actually recording this on Friday the 13th before we leave. In order to clear up our schedules to do all the work that we need to do in Texas next week, Mike and I have had to record and edit five podcasts this week. And needless to say, that is not our typical recording schedule. So with that being said, I'll warn you up front, this episode will be a little bit shorter than normal. We even considered skipping this week's episode, but the content that I want to cover today is essential, and it is an integral follow-up to last week's episode. In today's episode, I plan to pile on to the destruction of the state's case against Ed Eights, and further prove that there is no possible way that Ed could have killed Elnora. Dr. James Booker. That is a name that has been a mystery to me for months. In the few documents that I previously had from ISIS investigation, I found notes where Tony Hereford was trying to track down Dr. Booker before the second trial. The only information that I had on Dr. Booker was that he was supposed to be an expert witness in the second trial, but he never testified. For the last couple of months, I've been doing research about Dr. Booker, and I've even tried to track him down. But as it turns out, Dr. Booker isn't practicing anymore, and no one seemed to have new contact information for him. Well, in the new open records request, I finally found out who James Booker is. I had already discovered that Dr. Booker is a toxicologist, and I couldn't figure out what use he could be in Ed's trial. The toxicology report on Elnora at autopsy showed that she had no drugs and no alcohol in her system. The only mention of drugs at all is the fact that Ed had taken a Xanax a few hours before he went into his interview with Detective Huckel on the night Elnora's body was found. 
And the only reason that I knew that was because Ed told me that he'd been playing basketball at his uncle's house that day. He'd had about five millers and his knee was bothering him. And his uncle gave him a Xanax and said that it would help calm his knee down. Which, by the way, I'm pretty sure that's not how Xanax works. But that's what Dr. Uncle told him. But moving on, Ed had also mentioned that to Detective Huckel during his first interview. Well, as it turns out, that is one of the reasons that Ed's defense was looking for Dr. Booker. Dr. James Booker did testify in Ed's first trial. And as I'm about to explain to you, unfortunately, his testimony really wasn't of much use. Now, we know that Ed's first trial did result in a mistrial, but I believe a better expert may have actually resulted in Ed being acquitted the first time around. On direct examination, Dr. Booker testified that if someone Ed's size had had five beers over a period of five hours and a Xanax, that they may be incapable of connecting consequences to actions. The purpose of having Dr. Booker testify to this was to point out that when Ed waived his right to an attorney during that first interview, the defense was arguing that he was incapable of understanding the severe consequences that could result in not having an attorney present. Sounds like a decent argument. But unfortunately for Ed, this argument was quickly and easily dismantled by David Dobbs in cross-examination. And to be honest, I can't imagine why Ed's defense attorney spent the money on this expert and didn't see this coming. Especially when you're dealing with someone who is, I have to admit, an extremely skilled litigator in David Dobbs. And in this case, regarding Dobbs v. Booker, Booker brought a knife to a gunfight. In cross-examination, all Dobbs had to do was ask if Dr. Booker was aware of the fact that four days after this interview, that Ed came in and gave a second interview. Booker said that he was aware of this, and Dobbs simply made the point that the second time he came in for an interview, he had had no beers and no Xanax, and still waived his right to an attorney. Making the entire argument about Ed's ability to understand the consequences of waiving his right to an attorney in his first interview completely irrelevant. His testimony about the toxicology had zero effect on the jury. But on the other hand, Dr. Booker was kind of a rare case. He testified at Ed's first trial on two different areas of expertise, toxicology and blood spatter. And his blood spatter analysis could have and should have proven that Ed could not have killed Elnora Griffin. And after a quick break for an ad, we'll get into Dr. Booker's blood spatter testimony. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. 
Besides testifying about toxicology, Dr. James Booker spent most of his time on the stand talking about blood spatter. When you go on the website and read his testimony, I think that you'll agree with me that Dr. James Booker is no blood spatter expert. He did a few things right. He spent most of his time focusing on the blood droplets that are on the short wall between the living room and the kitchen, and I actually agree with his analysis here. Remember when I was discussing that blood spatter, I pointed out that it looked like the blood droplets came from two different directions, and that I don't believe that they came from Elnora from the spurts when her throat was slit. Some of them may have, but some of them most definitely did not come from that direction. You'll remember that I had a theory that it's possible that the killer stubbed their toe on that piece of trim that was broken loose there, because some of that blood spatter hit that wall in an upward direction, which would be impossible coming from Elnora. Dr. Booker agrees with me on this. He also believes that there are two different blood spatters on that wall, from two different directions. But things got sidetracked when he started testifying to his theory about how there could be two different directions of blood spatter. Now this is something that you haven't seen, and unfortunately you won't see. I just don't feel that it's fair to Elnora or her family to show photos of her body. But you heard me mention months ago when we did the crime scene analysis that on Elnora's right rib cage, there was a large smear of transferred blood. This is not spatter, and it's not blood that ran down from her throat. It's isolated from the blood that's on her throat, shoulders, and back. This smudge of blood, as I would refer to it, fits perfectly to me with someone coming up behind Elnora, holding her with their right arm, and cutting her throat with their left. The right arm would be covered in blood, and as Elnora fell away from them, their right arm would have brushed against her, creating that blood smudge. Now, it's very possible that I'm not right about that, but I certainly believe that it's a plausible theory. But in cross-examination, Dr. Booker gave what I consider to be a ridiculous theory. Booker testified that he can explain the two different directions of the blood spatter on the wall by Elnora trying to defend herself. His testimony goes on for several pages, but basically this is it. He testified that the killer was right-handed, which by the way, every expert that I've had look at these photos all agree that the cut was made with someone's left hand from behind Elnora. But Booker says that he believes it was a right-handed person who slit Elnora's throat and that the blood spatters on the wall, in his mind, fit perfectly with the blood smear on her right rib cage. His theory is that Elnora had her hand up by her throat when it was cut. The hand became drenched with blood, and in order to defend herself, after her throat was slit, she flung her hand back to hit the assailant behind her, missed the assailant, and hit herself on her own rib cage. Now this blood smear is right underneath her right armpit, so try and act this out. Imagine someone is tight behind you, and you want to get them off of you. Now swing your arm wide, missing, and somehow bring your hand back to hit your own rib cage underneath your armpit. It's not an impossible motion to make, but it's certainly not natural, and in my opinion, extremely unlikely. So Booker says that her swinging her hand in that motion caused one of the cast-off patterns on the wall. She hit her hand on her own rib cage that left the smear on her ribs, which, by the way, I believe was way too big to be from her hand. And then after she missed, she swung her hand back forward. Now let's first talk about the movements of someone who's trying to defend off someone who is holding them from behind. In order to make the cut on her throat, 
the offender would have to be very close, actually probably touching her back. I think that if you're trying to ward off this attack, the most likely movement you would make would be to throw an elbow, not to swing your hand around to your own ribcage. Also, I would expect that movement to be made, the act of defending yourself against the offender, would be made before your throat was slit. Now, I've never had this happen to me, obviously, but my belief is, once your throat has been slit, that that is probably the only thing that you're thinking of. I would expect your hands to go right where Elnora's hands were found when she was found dead, right to her throat, right to the injury. So as I'm reading this testimony, I am honestly saying out loud to myself, this guy's an idiot. He's wrong. This is ridiculous. And I have to admit, for the first time in this entire case, I agreed with every word that David Dobbs said. When Dobbs got up in cross-examination, he owned James Booker. He made him look like a fool in front of that jury. He made many of the same arguments that I just made. And then he also asked about the angle of the blood spatter that was on that wall. In order to try to explain the angles, Booker says that her head would have had to have been down by the ground, meaning she was laying on the ground or on her knees when her throat was slit. But we definitely know she was not laying on the ground when her throat was slit because of the runoff of the blood on her shoulders. I know it's been a long time ago, but if you remember back to the crime scene analysis, there is a lot of blood on Elnora's shoulders and back. And you can see where the blood ran straight down, indicating that she was standing straight up when her throat was cut, and then after she fell, the blood makes a 90-degree turn and runs down her ribcage. Exactly what you would expect to see if someone was standing upright, got their throat cut, and then fell to the ground. You'll have to read the testimony for yourself, and when you do, you'll see what I mean, that Dr. Booker was made to look like a fool, which really is very unfortunate for Ed. Because Booker did make one really good point. One point that combined with other evidence, I believe could have and should have acquitted Ed. Booker pointed something out that I had not noticed before, because it was not brought up in the second trial, because Booker didn't testify. No blood spatter expert testified. Booker pointed out that there were blood drops on Elnora's legs. After he pointed out, and I re-examined the crime scene photos, you can see them clearly. It is painfully obvious that after Elnora was lying flat on the ground, blood dripped directly down onto her legs that were already laying flat on the ground. There's no denying it. That blood dripped off of the killer. This was significant because Booker testified that given all of the evidence, he believes that the killer would most definitely have had blood on their clothing and on their shoes. But I believe that the jury didn't hear any of that. All they saw was the man being made a fool of by David Dobbs. Add to that evidence the fact that Jason Waller testified that there were no indications whatsoever on the crime scene that the killer cleaned themselves up in the trailer then the fact that the killer should have had blood on their clothing, on their person, and on their shoes becomes extremely significant. And we'll get into the reasons why right after the break. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So Dr. James Booker is certain that the killer would have been covered in blood. At the very least, they would have had blood on their clothing and their person. And he says most likely on their shoes. And I think that common sense would tell us that with an injury like this, and the massive amounts of blood loss, in the close quarters of the killer to the victim, I think we can all agree that the killer most certainly would have had blood on them. So how does this relate to what we know about Ed Aids? Well, first of all, let's back up for a second, and remember that common sense would also dictate that the killer would have scratch marks on them. Certainly, in a struggle like this, there would be bruises, scrapes, scratches, or cuts on the killer, none of which were found on Ed Eights. In this segment, I want to move on to talk about Ed's girlfriend at the time, Monica Bush. So according to the state's theory of the case, Kubia Jackson called Elnora sometime between 9.45 and 10.15. Based on her statement given to the police, which we'll discuss in detail in another episode, I believe the time was somewhere between 10 o'clock and 10.15. I just don't see how she could have been on the phone with Elnora before 10. So according to the state's theory of the case, at best, Elnora was still alive and okay at 10 o'clock at night. Kubia says that she sounded normal, she didn't sound like she was in any kind of distress when she talked to her on the phone. And as the state's theory moves on, Elnora hangs up the phone, and by 11.20 p.m., Ed arrives at his girlfriend Monica's apartment, which is about a 20-minute drive from Elnora's trailer. The state believes that after that phone call, Ed had the struggle with Elnora, slit her throat, then nailed a towel up to the window, found her keys, went outside, started her car, and drove to Monica's house. Somehow, he managed to ride in Elnora's car for a total of 40 minutes without getting any blood on the car, any fingerprints on the car, or any feces in the car. Which is critical because another part of their theory of the case is that he stepped in the feces. So much so that he still had it on his shoes 24 hours later when Dale Huckel was questioning him. In order for the state's theory to work, when Ed arrived at Monica's apartment, he would have had to have been in a frame of mind where he could sit with her in her bedroom listening to music and talking and acting perfectly normal, according to Monica, where she did not see any blood on his clothing or on his person or any scratches or bruises. According to the state, he left sometime after midnight, drove back to Elnora's trailer, parked her car back in the back where no one could see it from the road, and then walked up to his grandmother's house, and then called Monica on the phone and spoke with her again for a while before he went to sleep. So let's break this post-defense behavior down point by point. First of all, let's talk about the time of arrival at Monica's apartment. The night Elnora's body was found, that Friday night, Deputy Steve Cheney stepped out of the interview with Ed and called Monica. This was 24 hours after he had been at her apartment. At that point, Monica told Cheney that Ed showed up at her house and knocked on her door sometime between 10 and 11 o'clock at night. Now, we know that by the second trial, her testimony was that Ed didn't arrive till 11.20. We've wondered this entire time, why the change in time frame? After now having access to the written statement of Monica's mother, Marsha, as well as reading her first trial testimony, I think I have the answer as to why her testimony changed. I believe it was a combination of things. 
I believe that the number one reason is because Monica's mom said that Ed arrived at 11.20 p.m. And number two, I believe that David Dobbs convinced her that her mother was right. Monica's mother, Marsha, testified that on the night Elnora was killed, she watched an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. But she said there were two episodes on that night, and that when the second episode started, it was a rerun and she remembered it. So she shut it off and went to bed, and before she had went to sleep, that's when Ed arrived at their apartment. Therefore, if the second episode started at 11 o'clock at night, she watched a little bit of it, shut it off, went to bed, and before she fell asleep, Ed arrived, 11.20 would be about right. But here's the rub. In Monica Bush's testimony at the first trial, we see that David Dobbs has prepped her for her testimony. Dobbs asked Monica, Do you recall what shows, if any, your mother liked to watch? Monica, Unsolved Mysteries. Dobbs, and had you reviewed a TV guide from that night to see when Unsolved Mysteries came on? Monica, yes. And this is what I mean by Dobbs had prepped her for her testimony. Obviously, he knew that she had reviewed the TV guide, and I would assume that that could only come from a previous conversation. Dobbs asks, when did it come on? Monica, the first show starts at 10. Dobbs, is it an hour from 10 to 11 and another one from 11 to 11.30? Monica, yes. But there's a couple of problems with this statement. For starters, it conflicts with itself. Unsolved Mysteries is indeed a one-hour program, so the first one airing from 10 to 11 makes perfect sense. But the second one airing from 11 to 11.30 does not make sense. How do you fit a one-hour program in a half-hour time slot? I believe that the reason for that confusion is because the TV guide is not clear. We discussed the TV guide several months ago, and there's a copy of it up on the website. The issue is that after every show, there's a sequence of numbers, some kind of code, which appears to sometimes jumble up when programs fit into their time slots. What we do know from the TV guide is that at 11.30 on the Lifetime Network, the same network Unsolved Mysteries was on, a show called 30-something began. There's no question in that. The issue is that in the 9.30 time slot, there's a code from the show from the previous time slot. I believe that the proper way to read that TV guide is that Unsolved Mysteries began at 9.30, the first episode ended at 10.30, which is when the second episode started, which ended at 11.30. If that's the case, Ed's time of arrival gets moved up about 30 minutes. Instead of arriving at 11.20, now he would be arriving at 10.50. And if he arrived at 10.50, he would have had to have left Elnora's trailer no later than 10.30 leaving Ed, according to the state's theory of the case, only 15 to 30 minutes to get Elnora's clothes off, begin the assault, for the struggle to ensue, for him to kill her, find a hammer, nail the towel up to the window, find the keys, get in Elnora's car, and drive out to Monica's. It seems unlikely that he could have done all of this even being there at 11.20, but being there at 10.50 makes that seem even more difficult. But let's move past the time that Ed arrived at Monica's apartment, and let's talk about how he got there. The state was able to corroborate their theory of Ed driving Elnora's car to Monica's apartment at trial using the testimony of Jesse Nelson. If you remember, Jesse Nelson was the person who testified that I think was completely off his rocker. He said that the night Elnora was killed, 
that he saw her white car parked by the dumpster facing the woods. And the car got his attention because he had never seen it there before. And he was certain that it was the exact car that was shown in the picture, the picture of Elnora's car. He also, for context's sake, testified that he could tell the difference between two different dimes in a completely dark room without touching them. From what Ed tells me, Jesse Nelson had the entire courtroom laughing his testimony was so ridiculous. But nonetheless, there he was testifying that he had seen Elnora's car in that complex the night that Elnora was killed, which went a long way to prove the state's theory of the case that Ed had driven her car there. Jesse Nelson's written statement reads as follows. I, Jesse Nelson, saw the white car in this picture late Thursday night of 7-22-93 when returning from truck driving school. The car was facing frontward toward the woods. I noticed the vehicle because I had never seen the car here before. In order to counteract that testimony, Ed's defense called Cedric Walker to the stand, Jesse Nelson's stepson. Cedric Walker testified that he also saw the car there that Thursday night, but he ended his testimony by saying that he had seen the car there before. Let me read you Cedric Walker's statement. Late Thursday night, I and my sister were washing clothes when my father came in. Myself and my sister were in the parking lot when I saw the car in the picture that I initialed parked between the boat and two cars. The car was facing the woods. I have seen the car here before. Now, as you're weighing the evidence out, you have one guy that insists it was absolutely that car that was in the parking lot that night. And then you have a 17-year-old kid who says that he also saw that car, but he had seen it there before. But Jesse Nelson, in his testimony, insisted that it was indeed that specific car. But in this new open records request, there's one other statement that I had never seen before. I had seen this name on a document somewhere, but I could never recall where. If you remember way back when we talked about this, months ago, I kept getting confused between Cedric Walker and Cedric Wheeler. I thought I had just gotten the name wrong. But as it turns out, I didn't get the name wrong. There just so happened to be two different Cedrics that lived in this apartment complex, and one of them was never brought up at trial and I don't believe the defense ever knew he existed. Huckel and Dobbs went out to visit Jesse Nelson on the 26th of July. That would be the Monday after the murder. Both of their statements are dated the 26th. But what we never heard about at trial was that they had also visited the apartment complex the day before on the 25th. And while Cedric T. Walker gave a statement on the 26th, Cedric T. Wheeler gave a statement the day before. Cedric T. Wheeler, whose statement we had never seen before, reads as follows. Early through the summer, I had seen the car in this picture of July 25, 1993, at this time presented to me. This appointment date of July 25, 1993, I have given information about seeing this particular car in the River Oaks apartment after the evening of 5 to 5.30 time and also, this past Thursday night, parked in the River Oaks apartment complex. What Cedric Wheeler is saying here is that he also had seen this car in the apartment complex before the night of the murder, and that he also saw it there on the night of the murder. I believe that when you put both of these statements together and compare them with Jesse Nelson's statement, 
it couldn't be more clear that the vehicle that Jesse Nelson saw was not Elnora Griffin's. And we also have further evidence to corroborate this theory, something that I missed earlier. I think we all missed it, including the jury. Both of the Cedrics and Jesse all testified that the car was parked out by the woods. Now, I have been out to this apartment complex. There's only one set of woods near that building. In order to get to those woods, you would step out of Monica Bush's apartment and hang a sharp right, go past the laundry room, across the street, and that's where these parking spaces are. But what I had never noticed before, and I don't know if it was just me missing it or if it was just the way it was presented, but Monica Bush clearly testified that when Ed walked out of her apartment that night, that he turned left and walked towards the highway when he left her apartment. The exact opposite direction of where Jesse, Cedric, and Cedric say they saw the car. So if you're keeping score at this point, the time that the state says Ed arrived at Monica's apartment is definitely called into question at this point. Furthermore, the likelihood that the car that Jesse Nelson and Cedric Walker and Cedric Wheeler saw was most definitely not Elnora's car. And lastly, I want to get back to the relevance of Dr. James Booker's testimony. Remember that he believes that the killer would have had blood on their person, on their clothes, and likely on their shoes. And I believe that common sense would say the same thing. Now we know for a fact that there was no blood on Ed's shoes. They were actually sent to a crime laboratory and tested. But was there blood on his clothes that night? In Ed's first interview, the night after the murder, the night Elnora's body was found, he told Detective Huckel that he was wearing the same clothes that night that he was wearing the night before. The jury not only heard this interview, but they were able to read a copy of the transcript. So they knew that Ed had said that. When I asked Ed why he was wearing the same clothes, he said that it was because he got back from Monica's apartment late that night, and he called her on the phone, and he laid in bed still in his clothes talking to her for a while. When he got off the phone, he just fell asleep in his clothes. Then he said the next morning his grandmother woke him up early to go help her in the garden, a story that's confirmed by Johnny Pryor, who says that when she got home around 7 o'clock in the morning, that Ed was out in the garden helping his grandmother. Ed said that after he was done helping his grandmother, that he went to his uncle's house, where he hung out all day and played basketball, and that's when he had the few beers and the Xanax. And he had just never had the opportunity or the notion to change his clothes. If Ed was in the same clothes that night as he was the night Elnora was killed, that's huge, because Huckel inspected his clothes that night. He even made him take his shirt off and pull his shorts up. He was looking for injuries, and he was looking for blood on Ed's clothing and there was none. At Ed's second trial, the trial where he was convicted, when Monica Bush was on the stand, David Dobbs showed her the photos of Ed from that night in Huckel's office. He asked Monica, are these the clothes he had on, or did he have on different clothes? Monica, different. Under cross-examination, Ed's attorney Cliff Roberson tried to correct the situation unsuccessfully. He asked Monica again what Ed was wearing. Monica says a t-shirt with Shaquille O'Neal on there and black shorts. Mr. Roberson then showed her the picture of Ed from the night in Huckel's office, and Monica says, that's not it. It was a big picture of Shaquille O'Neal with a, like, going for a basket. So this did a couple of things in Ed's trial. Number one, it made him look like a liar to the jury. They heard him say that he was wearing the same clothes, and then his girlfriend say that he definitely was not. 
He was wearing black shorts and a Shaquille O'Neal shirt with a big picture of Shaq going for a basket. And it also took away Ed's defense that he couldn't have killed Elnora because there was no blood on his clothing. Because as far as anyone could tell, he was wearing different clothes that next day. Now let's go back to what Monica Bush said in the first trial. Remember, this is the trial where Ed got a mistrial. Dobbs asks her, Do you recall what the defendant in this case was wearing when he came over to your house? Monica, he had a t-shirt with Shaquille O'Neal on there going for a layup or a basket and a pair of shorts and some tennis shoes. Dobbs quickly moves on and doesn't address the topic again. Now the second trial was five years after the murder, and this first trial was three years after the murder. Well, in this new records request, we now know what Monica had to say 36 hours after the murder. Now the difference here is subtle, but it means the world. This was Saturday morning. Remember, Ed was in Hugel's office getting the picture taken of him Friday night, just the night before. Hugel asked an open-ended question. Can you describe the clothing for me? Monica says, he had on some black sneakers. Were they solid black or... Monica says, no, they're black and they have little gold and red. They're kind of, they're Velcro instead of, well, I guess it's laces up under there, but it's Velcro across the top and they got orangey, reddish little colors on them. Now, for the record, she just accurately described the exact pair of shoes that Smith County took into evidence and took the scraping off of. But she goes on. And some purple denim shorts. Hugel, shorts? Monica. And the shirt was black, but he's washed it in Clorox or something. But it's a Shaquille O'Neal shirt. Says like Shaq across here. And on the back, going for a layup or whatever they call it. Now, if you weren't listening closely, you may have missed the subtle difference between her statement 36 hours after Ed was at her house and her statement five years later at trial. Here she says, on the front of the shirt, it says Shaq. And on the back of the shirt, it has Shaq going up for a basket. Also at the trial, five years later, she said that Ed was wearing black shorts. But here she says he's wearing denim shorts. She describes them as purplish. So why does this matter? Why does that subtle difference make a difference? Because exhibit number 123 that Monica was showed at the second trial is the picture that was taken in Hugel's office the night he was questioned when he said that he was wearing the same clothes that he was the night before. Clothes that Hugel found to have no blood on them. Not a drop. And in that picture, Ed is wearing a faded black shirt that says Shaq across the left chest and a pair of denim shorts. The exact outfit that Monica described in her statement 36 hours later. Ed was indeed wearing the exact same clothing the night Huckel interviewed him and found no blood on his clothing that he was wearing the night of Elnora's murder. There is zero possibility that Edward Ates killed Elnora Griffin. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Our executive producer is Mike Bussing. I want to thank Shane Yoder for creating all the music for the episode. I want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. 
And thank you to our transcription team, Desiree Dunn, Sarah Mueller, and Sarah Hoyt for transcribing all the episodes and mailing them off to Ed and Kenny every week. Make sure you tune in next week, because at the time of this recording, I have no idea what happened in Texas, because we haven't left yet. But our mission on this trip to Texas is to make contact with Francis Johnson, Monica Bush, Elnora's granddaughter, and we're going to the prison to interview Ed. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Send us your new cases to cases at truthandjusticepod.com. Like the Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at truthjusticepod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.